0: good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, here we come uh, to the end of a couple seasons. Um, As most of you know, we... Um, starting next Sunday, we'll be worshiping together with a sister church of ours called Refuge City Church uh, that was planted about seven, eight years ago, and we were planted about ten years ago, and God has been in this process of merging our two congregations together what, for what seems like uh, five, six years or so uh with much of that progress being made over the past year to 2 years and so here we come to the end of a season the past 10 years of our church uh, will be officially 10 years in November uh that the first group of 11 people covenanted together in my living room uh just on the other side of the pond like not the big pond you know but the pond right here behind us uh The Lord has grown us from 11 people meeting in a living room at my house to a church of um, 90-ish people with three elders, three deacons, many leaders, and servants, and lots of kids. (laughs) In those days, we had zero. Uh, And then I think it was kind of Chapman who kind of paved the way for the kid movement in this church, and many, many to follow always seemingly in groups of three. Uh, we have as a church amazing unity. Uh, thinking about our, even our voting on such things as Pastor Greg, as one of our first elders after Rusty and I, uh, to our voting and affirmation of our three deacons, to the voting on this church merging at 100% agreement there. We have amazing community, relationship, and not just do people hang out with each other, but are people knowing each other, being known, sharing the gospel with each other. like true koinonia, like true fellowship, not just we hang out and enjoy food together. And many people living in God's grace like they never have before, whether they grew up in church or not, whether they've believed the gospel for a while or not, people experiencing the love and mercy of God and living by His grace in new ways like never before. But it is just that. It's a season. And if you know anything of history, anything of Bible history, but even history in general, it's a season in God's kingdom and we know since the beginning of time that one season always ushers in another season. Every season is always followed by another season, followed by another season, and God's kingdom is no different. Every season leading to another. The first season of Ten years, I want to remind you, has never been about us. There have been times we've been tempted, and I'm sure there are times you and I have lived like it has been about us. I know that's true in my own life, but it has not been about me, and it's not been about us. It's always been about Christ, His glory, His plan, His grace, His mercy, His kingdom. And next Sunday, my prayer... Is that it will be no different. That it will continue to not be about us. It will continue to be about His glory, His grace, His plan, His kingdom, and all the above. The next season in the life of our church will usher in its own expressions of God's grace, its own insights and pictures of his glory and I, let me exhort you and encourage you to be looking for that as God adds new people to our body remember it's not just another person to serve in the nursery or another person to hang out with in in Refcom or uh, you know house gatherings as we've traditionally called them it's yes those are parts when God adds pieces to the body he does that but when God adds pieces to the body I think the picture is more than just a hand to serve in the nursery as important as that is but it's another person made in the image of God that will show us just another little tiny facet of who God is of his glory of His magnificence. So be looking for that. It will usher in its own expressions of God's grace with new insights and pictures of His glory. So may we thank the Lord for the past ten years, for they have served the purpose of preparing us for the next season. Every season prepares us for the next season, as all the seasons this side of eternity will prepare us for the season of eternity. So let us have that in our eyes. Let us look to the past with hopeful fondness and enjoyment and thankfulness and gratitude. But let us look, let us not linger there, but look to the past so that we might look to the future. Let us look to the past and see what God has done so that we can look and be assured of His same work in his future grace and promises as we move forward. I am looking forward to what this next season has for us as a church. So I wanted to say that at the outset. uh, It doesn't have much to do with this passage, um, but I thought it appropriate for us. We also come to the end of another season, and that is the end of 2 Peter, Uh, rather quickly. uh, We are here at the end, already we have moved through Second Peter quickly. It was kind of a last-minute decision, anyways. We were uh, kind of moved some things around in the preaching schedule, and Second uh, Peter fit real nice. It was actually Rusty was on vacation, and I was praying through what should we do between now and September eighth at the end of First Peter, and he was sharing with me some of the insights that he had gained from Second Peter, and and I'm like, all right, there we go. Rusty will preach Second Peter. So I don't know if I told you at that moment, but then I came back later and said, Rusty, will you preach Second Peter, please? Uh, and I just wanted to say this, I, I don't mean this to be a pat on the back session, but I'm thankful for Rusty's expositions of these passages in the weeks leading up to this point. It's such a joy for me, and I hope for you as well, I'm sure it is for you. Particularly for me, as, as the one who preaches most of the time, or at least majority It's good to be in a body where there are other voices who can preach the word that I can be preached to or that can preach to me. Um, It's also good for you to have varied voices when it comes to preaching the text. Uh, It would not be good for you to hear from me 90% of the time. And I know that's what a lot of churches do. But it's just, just, that's just not good. I, I, I can only give you, from my perspective, so much of God's glory and, and show you and explain that. And I can only connect with so many people with you as, as well. And, and, but other God gives us a plurality of elders and other people who can teach the Word, who, who can connect with different people in different ways and can show you different facets of, of God's glory from the text. And that, that's so crucial for the health of the church for your individual health, and it's crucial for the elders themselves that they are taught as well. So as we've, as Rusty has brought us to in this passage, we've been talking about this idea of the genuine article, meaning specifically, the the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. The genuine truth concerning who Jesus is and the good news of Christ. So let me ask you the same question that Rusty's been asking us, and that is: Do you have the real gospel? Do you have the true gospel? Do you have the real truth of God's saving grace? Do you even know what that means? And maybe you're here today, and you're like, I I don't, I don't even know what that is. And and it's okay. We're going to talk about that today. And maybe some of you are like, Yes, absolutely, I got it. And and for you maybe you need to think twice and go well do I really have the true gospel or for some of us you know mentally the the gospel the true gospel but you don't really have it like you know it but you don't really have it So when I ask that question I think it kind of hits across all that spectrum of do you have the real gospel I think that's Peter's primary concern in this very short letter. Do you have the real gospel? And he addresses such things like, there will be false teachers among you. There will be those who come to try and lead you away from the false gospel or keep you from, I'm sorry, they will try to lead you away from the real gospel or will try to keep you from the real gospel. The gospel. There will be teachers, false teachers, that will do this. They, there will be lies perpetrated about God and His kingdom and His ways. And the reality is that these lies will come. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when and how. And a matter of whether or not we see them and recognize them for what they are. It's a dangerous place. To be. Listen, these lies will press in on you, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your entire being. It's dangerous. And like last week, Rusty said, you know, do we live like that? Do we live like this is a place that is dangerous, that these lies are all around us? Do we live as though there's that serpent in the garden slithering nearby? Or that lion that's roaring, seeking to devour us? Do we live like that's just right around the corner? I thought of a couple examples, like dad and mom. Do you understand that in many ways, you're the gatekeeper of truth for your household? You are the gatekeeper of truth for your household. Dad, how many lies do you teach your kids each week? How many lies do you let come into your home? How many lies do you even speak or lead them to believe with your own words and actions? Same is true for mom. What do we teach our kids when we do things like give ourselves so much to our work and give very little time to the Bible or instructing our family in the Word? Do we know what lies we are ushering into our family? Where we ourselves function as false teachers. As people who proclaim a false gospel. Maybe you're not married. And, but do you understand that in many ways you're the gatekeeper of truth for your own soul? What false teaching are you letting come in and wreak havoc on your life? Or what lies are in there that you've not sought to get rid of yet. Or that maybe you even pander to. Or protect even. It's a dangerous place. But we have this genuine article, this genuine truth of who Christ is, His Gospel, and God's saving work in our lives. That we're to believe. We're to guard. We're to protect. So with that, I, we're going to go all the way through chapter 3. My plan for this morning is I'm going to read just, I'm not going to read it all at once, I'm gonna, which is what I prefer to do, but this morning I'm just going to read a little piece. I'm going to talk through it, read a little piece, talk through it, read a little piece, talk through it. So uh, if you have your bullets in there, my, you can take notes on there. It will be kind of my three main points. We're going to do just a few verses at a time, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. Peter says this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray as we study Your Word this morning that You would give us all eyes to see and understand the passage, but more importantly that you would give us hearts to love and treasure you as you reveal yourself in this passage. Father, I ask for your supernatural work in our lives. We're dependent on you. Father, I ask these things for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name. Amen the first thing I want you to see is this. Your heart remembers what it wants to. Your heart remembers what it wants to. Your heart remembers what it wants to. I'm going to caveat this as we go, but, but hang with me for just a few minutes. First of all, let's think about the work of the mind, the the, the idea of retention and memory and remembering, this is clearly a huge importance to Peter. Peter is still concerned about this. That right belief leads to right behavior. Right belief leads to right behavior. Now, just as a kind of a side note here, this right belief is not just a mental assent to a set of statements or facts. This is a right belief, meaning like believing the right things, but then also beholding the right things, like like a loving the right things, seeing the glory in those things. So it's, it's one thing to believe a set of facts, but to see the, the truth, the goodness of it, if you will. So Peter is concerned about right belief that leads to right behavior. And I know, I know many of us grew up, many of us even still believe now, but some of us grew up in churches where it was just simply right behavior. That's it. So someone's going to get up, is going to teach us a little bit about the Bible, and then give us a list of things that we're to do. Right behavior. And then we walked away with our check box. If I did this, I did this, I did this. This was fine. I, right behavior. But that's not what Peter's concerned Peter's concerned about remembering. About knowing. About keeping. And, I, and I'm going to define this, 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 this remembering is this like intentional... Bringing to mind this conscious, willful decision to think upon and remember and grab a hold of these things. Because you're going to see this distinction between that and what the false teachers are doing. There's this call to remember. He wants to stir up this remembering. Now, I know this might seem crazy for some of us, but we are called and expected as Christ followers to be thoughtful, mindful, mind using, utilizing, stewarding people. We're to, in our mind, we're to use them intentionally as we walk and follow Christ. This means stewardship of the mind is critical. It's crucial. In fact, it is life-giving and life-taking. Well, you know, by the time I get done working, my brain is just so tired to give time to studying the Word. That's called foolishness. Give your best mind, your best time, your best energy, your clearest of thoughts, your clearest of moments to studying the Word. That's wisdom. Well, you know, I just don't understand things like I used to be able to. Then work harder. Steward the mind and the ability that God has given you. I get it. Some of us are quicker at things than others and able to process more, like faster CPUs and so on. I I get that. There are many of you out there that are much quicker in the intellect than I am. But these are not excuses. We're called to steward the mind that God has given us, to remember these things. And here's the deal. Do you understand what's at stake? Peter's not just saying, hey, make sure you remember these important things. Boom. Just do that. Just remember. No, he's saying there are false teachers looking to ravage and bring destruction upon your soul. Remember these things. Remember them. That's what's at stake. The mind matters. Now, here's the question. Okay, so what does Peter want us to remember? Remember? What does he want us to think about, to, to consciously break? There's two, two primary things here that will get fleshed out as we go. The first one is this, God's promise of Christ's return. God's promise of the future return of Christ, that Christ is going to come back someday. And there's a lot that's involved there, but just hang on for a second. Christ is going to come back someday to get his people, to bring justice, all these things. But this is a prediction, a prophecy. And it's one of the things that Peter wants to remind us of that this is going to happen. God's promise of Christ's return. The second thing is the Lord's command, Christ's command, construct, His instructions to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see both of those things in that passage where he says... That you should remember, verse 2, the predictions of the holy prophets, meaning the, the coming of Christ, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Meaning, what he has commanded us to do. Everything he has said about everything. You could put it that way. How we are to live in light of this. If you're thinking about, what, do I, what should I remember when it comes to, to, to guarding the gospel in my own life, you should write these two things at the top of the list. Namely, that Christ is going to return someday. That that needs to be at the top. And along with it, that I should treasure and seek to understand everything that Christ has said. That both of those things I need to remember. And you're going, wow, what is there that I don't need to remember? There you have it. But then Peter says, getting into the danger, he says, there will be those who try to rip the promises from your mind, and he calls them scoffers. Now here's the deal. Here's what's happening with the scoffers. They are denying the second coming of Christ. They they say, no, 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 he's he's not coming. He's not going. No, 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 that's crazy. Why? Why? Why does Peter say that they deny this? so they can do whatever they want to do. He says, so they can follow their sin their own sinful desires. These things inside their heart that are evil. They say this to themselves. If Jesus isn't coming, if there isn't this judgment coming, because Jesus isn't coming, then we can do what we want. Now, their, their reasoning, here's what they say in this passage, basically: that the earth is a closed system and there is no room for God's acting. That basically, He created it and let it spin. Right? That's what He's saying in verse four. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what He means is that God basically set things into motion and He does not interact with His creation. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning. That's their reasoning. So if God hasn't interacted since He set things into motion, then He's not going to interact by sending Christ to judge. So therefore, we can live how we want to. So let me ask this question. Where are the scoffers in your life? Where are the people who perpetrate these kinds of lies in your life? You should go on a hunt to figure this out. It could be, I I would say, it is virtually everywhere. It is virtually everything you watch on TV, everything you read on Facebook, the news, Yes, both Fox and CNN. Both. It is everywhere. Now, it doesn't mean everything, but it is everywhere. It's a, it may, just even as you're watching a show and see the subtle things that are in there that perpetrate lies about who God is, all denying the reality of Christ's return by their own words and/or their actions. But let's be careful to realize that maybe, maybe sometimes we're the scoffers. Like listen, we all act at times like functional scoffers. Some of us more than others. Maybe your pride says, I, you know, I'm good. I don't need to deal with what's going on in my life. I'm just going to cover over it. I'm just going to hide it. I'm going to try and suppress it. I'm just going to try to escape from it. You know this stuff. I know this garbage that I need to deal with in my life. I just don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. You know that is someone who doesn't believe Jesus is coming back. That's someone who says I, I just I want to. I'm just going to continue in this because I'm good. Self justification, where like I've sinned, but like I'm going to blame it on others, I'm going to blame it on this, you know, whatever the case is. Self justification, here's my excuses for I did what I did. That is someone who doesn't believe that Christ is returning. Or maybe someone who looks at things they know they shouldn't when no one else is looking. This says they don't believe that Christ is returning. Or someone who struggles to die to self for the good of others is struggling to believe that one day Christ is returning. So you can see how the scoffer is not just out there, but the scoffer can be inside here too that the danger is, is all around us. But here's Peter's response. Basically, Peter says this, in response to these false teachers, let me remind you of who God is. Let me remind you basically of some attributes of God Let me remind you, those who are trying to follow Christ, of who God is and what he has said in opposition to what the false teachers are claiming to be true about God. Let me help you. So he moves on to verse five through seven. For they, meaning the false teachers, deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by what? The word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. you thinking of the flood there. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Woo, what a passage, right? What a passage. Okay, so hang with me. We're going to be here majority of the time, really, in these few verses here. First of all, Peter wants to see that God is sovereign. That God is is in control of everything. So this flood, Noah, and the flood, and the ark, and that whole thing, he's saying this happened by God's word, by his power. As one person said, the fact that God interrupted chaos with order, meaning creation, and interrupted order with chaos, thinking flood, many times, the track record says God will do it again. That God will interrupt history again. Peter's point is this, it's foolish to suggest that things have stayed the same and God does not have a personal interest and sovereign working among it. He's saying that is utterly foolish. Look to the past. Look at the track record. Basically, Peter's argument is since God acted in creation and the flood, he will surely act in Christ coming again in the future. That God's sovereign activity in the past shows that these false teachers don't know what they're talking about. That they're crazy. They're foolish. They're liars. So to say, again, and now if we're acting as functional scoffers, right? then we need to hear these words too. God is sovereign. He will act again. Accountability will come. The other thing that he... Kind of inserts inside here is that we need to understand that God's sovereign working happens by the power of His Word, meaning He speaks it and it happens. He created by speaking and it happened. And then we know that, right? Jesus, from and John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So see that Jesus is the Word. He he is now God come in the flesh to work the will of God. He's the Word. I think Peter is pointing us here is that we should pay attention to what God has spoken. All of it. It's the power of His Word. And it all matters. So God is sovereign. Next, God is timeless. God is timeless, or God is eternal. He's, he's outside of time. Look at verse 8 through 10. But do not overlook this, one, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, if if you want to study further this week, go back and read Psalm 90. I think Peter is referring here to Psalm 90, and he has Psalm 90 on the brain, if you will. But particularly in verse 4, it says that God is an eternal God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, the scoffers bank everything on their enjoyment of the here and now. Now. But from the perspective which God teaches us to take here, that is short-sighted and foolish living. That it is more than just the here and now. It's more than just this moment in time or this moment this past week. Yes, that moment's crucial, but that moment and living just for this moment is foolish Now, part of what Peter's point here is, is that because God is outside of time, he views all time as near. So what the scoffers are doing is saying, look, so much time has passed. God is so slow to do what he actually said he was doing. So you shouldn't pay attention to what God is saying. That, that, that's what the scoffers are saying. You know, God, you know, God hasn't acted for you yet. What makes you think he's going to act for you tomorrow? He hasn't done what he said yet, so why makes you think he's going to do it tomorrow? But what Peter points us to here is that, that God stands outside of time. Think about, the, think about this. If you could hold all of time in your hand, if you could take all of time and just put it in your hand, think about the, how near God is to all of time. All of time, all of his actions throughout all of time is always near to him. It's not to us because you and I live inside time. So to God, he's not moving slowly, he's moving perfectly. Basically, Peter is saying this, we shouldn't be concerned about any perceived delay in Christ's return because God transcends time and it doesn't affect Him like it does us. So God is timeless. Next, God is merciful. God is merciful. Verse 9. Again, Peter is, he is responding to The scoffers, not directly to the scoffers, but he's responding to the people concerning what the the scoffers are saying. He says, God is merciful. In verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Alright, this is a great verse, okay? Great verse. For multiple reasons. Yes, yes. The Lord is going to judge. Yes, Christ is going to come and he's going to set the record straight. But look at what Peter says God is merciful in his time, God is merciful in his patience. Listen, God was being accused of slowness or slack. So, so, so why has God not judged yet, they say? But again, remember what's on Peter's mind. Psalm 90. Go back to Psalm We don't have time to read it now, but go read Psalm 90 and look at verse 3. The idea in Psalm 90 verse 3 is the idea of you turn men back to dust. What is Psalm 90 referring back to? Genesis 3. Humanity's creation and fall. So what happened what it was God forbade man and women. A uh, or, or woman to eat the fruit, saying, he says this in Genesis, when you eat, you will surely die. Now, what do we remember from that passage? That they don't die immediately. Why? Why? So that God could just play out his story, because so that, why? So that, you know, God just didn't want to kill them right away. Why? Why? Because the Lord in His great mercy extended the time and possibility of salvation for His people. Boom, you ate from the tree, you're dead. That's what they deserved. But God from that moment on in His mercy begins to work His patient Plan of salvation for his people. But the false teachers forgot this lesson. Listen, it is to our advantage that God measures time on his scale and not ours. Listen, God's patience is a highlight of his heart. That he would give time. Listen, it's been 2,000 years since Christ died on the cross. He is not slow in Christ's return. He's just that patient. He's just that kind and that merciful. And then he says he desires that all should repent. right? All should turn from their sin and believe in Christ. What does that phrase mean? It means literally, God's heart desire is that no one would spend eternity in hell under his wrath. That's what it means. Yes, even for us reformed people, it means that. That God's heart, that he desires that. And in this, think about the context. This includes the scoffers. This includes those who are spreading lies that God desires that they would not spend eternity apart from Him. You see that God's love. Do do you understand this? The very patience that the scoffers were mocking was the very thing that should have led them to repentance. Now, here's the question. Does this mean that without exception, all will be saved? I don't think that that's what this means. I think God can have desires and have other desires that supersede those desires. There's orders in the desires of God, but at the risk of sounding like a cheap cop-out here, I want to quote Dr. Schreiner. He said, It is better to live with the tension and mystery of the text than to swallow it up in a philosophical system that pretends to understand all of God's ways. God's patience and His love are not illusions, but neither do they remove His sovereignty. It is both. And we can try, and if you want to talk about how these things go together later, that's fine, we can have a conversation just Let's be careful that we don't miss the point. Peter's point is not to have long, drag-out debates on what this particularly means. Not that that is necessarily wrong. But his point here is this, that God is merciful and patient and desires for all people to trust Him. That's his point. Romans 2 4 says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's Peter's point. That this very thing they're scoffing at is the thing meant to lead them to repentance. So the question for us is do you understand the patience of the Lord? Do you grasp, to what measure do you grasp it? I mean, the reality is is none of us fully understand the mercy and the, the patience and the kindness of the Lord. You know, on Friday, His kindness and a new level of His kindness was made aware to me. A new measure of His mercy was made aware to me. Why do we sometimes struggle to understand the patience of the Lord? I think it's because a lot of times we don't think there's anything for Him to be patient with us about. Hey, we should move on. God is just. God is merciful. God is just. I, I should say back, let me give another example. Some, some of us don't understand the patience of the Lord because we're so swallowed up in our own perfection. Like, wanting, and there's no way God could ever be patient with me. There's no way in this moment He's patient with me because I'm just not perfect. Jesus was. Jesus was. God is just. God is just. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Whew, what a verse again. This day when Christ comes will come without warning. It will come without warning. It's going to come, it will be unexpected. Listen, Jesus is not waiting on someone to attack Israel. He's not waiting on some event chart to finish. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It could happen now. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen a thousand years from now. Remember, God's timeline is not ours. And when it comes, it says it will come like a mighty thunder. The elements of which we know will be burned up here, this, you know, how that's going to happen and all those details, just be careful and not miss the point. Here's the point. At the end of wh- however that's going to look, whether this is literal or, or what's happening in these passages, passage, or if he's just giving examples of this destruction of the earth, here's what you need to lay it. Here's where you must land at the end of this verse. is that only man and woman will be left to stand before God and give an account. That's what will be left. Here is the climax of history. Man and woman standing in front of God once more to answer for eating that piece of fruit. All right. There we go. I want you to go back to verse five for me. Go back to verse five. It says this, for they deliberately overlook this fact. And then he spells this out. Isn't that interesting? They know it, but overlook it. Now this this word for overlook is really like related, like translated if you will, more literally, maintain. For they maintain this unbelief. They secure, they keep a hold of this number. They deliberately overlook it. They mentally know the truth, but they suppress the truth. They know it, but are making a conscious choice to ignore it. You see, their memory issue is not a mental issue, but a heart issue. They remember, they know it, but they suppress it. To what end? so they can justify their sinful desires. Sounds a lot like Romans 1. Like where they push the truth down so they don't have to deal with the truth so that their heart's desires and the evil there can get what they want. Listen, our own sinful desires will lead us to do these sorts of things, this deliberate overlooking This deliberate overlooking might look like the following, filling your mind with garbage to crowd out the truth, or lead us to just flat out deny the truth, conveniently forget the truth, or emotionalism where we can't see the truth, or pride where we can't hear the truth, or twisting the facts so you think you're believing the truth. But they deliberately overlook. There's this proneness in us too to deliberately overlook the truth. You see, half the battle is knowing the truth. The other half of the battle is not deliberately forgetting the truth. Listen, I'm sure, again, just like some of us have different mental abilities, some of us are better at remembering certain things certain kinds of information, all of that. that I'm not denying that. But most of our issue when it comes to living a life of godliness is our heart's desire or lack of desire to know and remember the truth. For it is easy in that moment when your heart wants something so bad for you to conveniently overlook the truth. We remember what we want to. Listen, listen, pastorally, I watch this all the time in my life and in many of yours. Listen, we forget to read our Bible, but we sure don't forget to turn in that report at work. Or we deliberately overlook the fact that God has called us to commune with each other. But we sure don't forget to spend time with our hobby. See, our heart deliberately overlooks the truth when it's convenient for our heart's desires. Because our hearts desire something so bad, will neglect the word, choose to suppress it. So the question is, is what reality of God and His working and His word do you deliberately overlook so that you can follow your own sinful desires? Like Write that question down. Where am I deliberately overlooking the truth so that I can get what I want? Listen, th- there are, that's probably happening many times every day to, to put this in perspective, okay? You're not looking for that one time the past year that you did this. You're looking for that one time or 10 times this morning that you've already done it. So, Peter is saying to you, church, remember these things. Don't deliberately overlook the truths of who God is and what he has promised to do, especially the return of Christ, and that the words that he has spoken matter, his commands. Don't deliberately overlook these things. We need the Lord's patience and kindness to do what? Because here's the reality. Our hearts are not within our control. If this remembering is really a heart thing, then we must have God's patience and kindness to help us in this place. So the question is, I want to answer in this last short portion is this. While we wait for Christ's return, what does this look like? What does this look like? Let's go to verse 11 through 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The, the last thought here, or second to last time, while we wait. While we wait. I want you to think about Peter's vision here for just a moment. Think about what Peter has just written. On one hand, the destruction of absolutely everything, minus us, or sans us. On the other hand, the recreation of something infinitely more wonderful. In Peter's hands, both of these things within the same sentence or two. I mean, look at his words, and there's even in the ESV, there's an exclamation point. There's there's an intensity to this. But according to his promise, we're waiting on this. He holds both in his hands and in his sights at the same time. Listen, this isn't just some cosmic crunch, as someone said, coming. It's the invitation of a creator and savior. Understand, and Peter, the language here that will be destroyed is actually a, pre- a present participle, meaning it's almost as if the process has already started. That this, this beginning of the end and the destruction of the earth has already started. What lies in the future, in a sense, has already begun in Peter's eyes. But it ends... With a personal encounter with the personal and living God. And if that's the case, then our personal human response matters. So Peter says, while we wait, holiness and godliness. Holiness and godliness. Okay, what, what is, literally he means this. In holy forms of behavior and godly deeds. Now, they're plural. They're plural. They're plural, implying that there are many ways in which these are to be practiced. That this holy and godly is very all-encompassing. And he wants us to expand these ideas beyond any narrow concept of religious activity or things to do. That there's a broader application than just a checklist of religious activity. Now compare with me, growing up in a legalistic church, and you may not have thought of it as legalistic, but let me describe it, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Growing up, or you've spent some time, maybe even your adult life, where all the lines of right living were drawn up nice and neat for you, right? So as long as you stay square, you check this off each week, and check this off, and check this off, and you're good. If you stay in those boundaries, then you can do basically whatever you want outside of that boundary. Then you come to a church like this where we understand that godly living is more encompassing than any simple set of rules or traditions can provide. Now, yes, I'm sure we have rules and traditions here that we're even blind to and don't realize it. As soon as we discover it, we try to deal with those appropriately. There's my caveat, but we don't want that. What we want is to understand that, that pursuing Christ and godly living is all-encompassing. But, but what's happened, is here's what, something I've noticed. If you grew up or spent lots of time in legalism, legalistic church context, and you come into a setting like this, what happens is we discover that those people struggle to apply the gospel. For example, go to Sunday school, Sunday night service, you know, Wednesday night service, prayer group, visitation, you know, all those things, and I'm good, right? But the idea of being in intimate relationships with the body of Christ suffering through difficult life that this is really hard. But the the gospel has application in those moments too. Or following leadership and things like that or or just dying to self for the good of another person. Those kind of principles that take wisdom and humility to apply in every situation of life. That gets hard. And I, I get it, it's hard. It's easier just to give you a checkbox list of things that you're supposed to go do and go do it, and then we can all feel good about thinking we're righteous. But to say the the Bible calls you to die to yourself for the love of neighbor. Now let's go apply it. Right, That's harder, isn't it? It's harder both because it requires more of you. It's harder also because it takes more thoughtfulness and wisdom and help to apply it. And that's part of what Peter's talking about here, that there's, there's more, to, it's, it's all-encompassing. That while we wait, that's what it's to look like. To take the principles of faith and all that Christ has commanded, the, the fact that He's going to return the promises of God and put it to work, to apply it in every area of our lives. And while we wait, he says to steward your time. Verse 15 through 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So a lot of people have applied, you know, look at this and go, yeah, see, it was hard for Peter to understand. That's why it's hard for me to understand and so on and so forth, right? So that gets me off the hook from doing the hard work of understanding the scriptures or whatever. Here's what P- Peter's saying. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. I think Peter is picking back up on the idea of making sure that your salvation is true. Making sure that your calling and election is true. That you, God is patient now. Make sure that this is true. Do things. Seek faith. Beat the flesh. Pursue humility. Pursue repentance and faith. Now listen, the scriptures are difficult to Understand. But what are you spending your time doing? If they're difficult to understand, then spend time working on it. Give time to studying it. Okay, here's what's at stake. The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Destruction. Do you understand how much of our own ignorance of the Scripture leads to twisting the little bit of Scripture we do know that leads to our destruction to the destruction of other people? Right? The implication there is that we should strive to not be ignorant of the text as we work out our salvation. Now, here's the question. The last question I'll ask is, like, how how we wait? What do we do? Well, how do we actually wait? So that's what we're to be doing while we wait. Now, how do we actually wait? Like, what is our motivation for such living If our memory is controlled by and large by our hearts, and yet we are called to holy living as we wait for the return of Christ, how? Look at verse 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. A few couple points here real quick, or a few points here. First of all, guard yourself. Guard yourself. He says to take care that you're not carried away, to guard yourself, to protect yourself. How do we do that? I'm I'm gonna move beyond this, this passage here for just a moment. But one of the greatest ways we do that is by seeking Humility. By asking God for humility, right? In other passages, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You go to like the Beatitudes, and he's talking about this lowly of heart and this poor in spirits, this humble, sorry, poor in spirit, this humble dependence. I look around, and I've thought recently about this a bunch. Why so many of us, even in this room, struggle to observe righteous examples and fail to wisely apply the commands of Christ? I think for many of us, it's just just, we're too prideful. We don't have this fear of the Lord. And if we don't have this fear of the Lord because we're too prideful, then we're going to think we've already got it figured out. And when we think that we've already got it figured out, that is the moment we will be carried away and lose our stability. Why? Because functionally, our hearts and minds' eyes closed. So guard yourself, take care that you're not carried away in error. And then he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. I want to remind you of a series we preached uh, last summer on the habits of grace. And the three main ones we talked about was the grace of the word, the grace of prayer, and the grace of the body. And we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord primarily through these three ways. Through studying the word, through praying and talking to God, and through the body of Christ. But if we're to take the bigger picture here with Peter, he says that we're, we're to remember these things. Now, back to the beginning of the passage, we need the Lord to tune our hearts so that we remember what we should remember. If we're failing to remember the truths he has called us to remember, then let's repent. God, why? Why am I? It may, maybe, listen, for some of us, it could be just legitimate memory inability. For a lot of us, it's heart sin. Because I don't want to remember that. I don't want to put the time into remembering that. It's not convenient for me right now. So let's ask God to forgive us. That my heart wants something else. So help me remember the right things. So the three graces, asking God to tune our hearts, and then lastly, remembering God's future grace. These are how we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Remember God's future grace. Listen. The threat of future judgment can certainly serve a purpose in motivating our obedience. But it cannot be our primary motivation. Here is Peter's motivation for us. The promise of new heavens and a new earth. Live this way. Why? because there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. We're looking forward to, what we're looking forward to is not primarily the punishment of the wicked, but a new world for us. One that's transformed into a place where righteousness is the order of the day. In everything. A new physical universe born. When that happens, God's intention for creation will finally be realized and the loop of the Scriptures will be closed. The circle will be completed. Listen, I can choose righteousness now, in this moment, whatever I am facing, because my righteousness tomorrow is guaranteed. I don't need this fleshly desire in this moment because this fleshly desire is going to disappear someday. Why waste the time when I'm looking forward to righteousness that is guaranteed? Lastly, Peter says, to him be the glory. To him be the glory. But God, verse 18, but God is great in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. How do we? The reality is this, none of us are going to live righteously. Like, right, we are, we're scoffers too at times. And we're false teachers at times as well. And sometimes we succumb to false teaching and we perpetrate truth and, and, and propagate truth that uh, uh, sorry, lies of God that, are, that, are not, that hurt people and that hurt ourselves and hurt our families. and we, we do all these things. Just you, you and I are, are not the, the Peter of this passage. You and I, in many ways, are the scoffers of this passage or we're, we're the people who have a hard time remembering in this passage. But what we know is that God has sent Jesus to die for us. To take the punishment for our sin. That he came and lived perfectly. We get to live in the new heavens and the new earth only by being forgiven for our sins because Jesus took the punishment for them. If you don't hear anything else I say, whether you've been a Christian never or you have been a Christian for a long time, Hear that. His promises for tomorrow were secured because He kept His promise of the cross. Listen, we can behold His glory now As we trust that one day His greatness will no longer be veiled by our sin. For in full righteousness we shall look upon His face and the desires of our flesh shall melt away. You see see the point? They're believing lies because they want their sinful desires. But believing the truth This leads towards this day where there's this new heaven and this new earth that is righteous. Meaning these desires, this evil is all gone. And that's what awaits the people who trust God. So let me encourage you with this. Study the word Meditate on his glory, pray, be exhorted by the body, do it and keep doing it until by God's power your heart remembers and remembers and remembers and remembers and and beholds the glory of God, and then remembers and remembers and remembers and embraces Christ's future return for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you today and as we study your word, Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that want to remember the truth, that long to remember the truth, that fight to remember the truth and we understand that this heart is only given by your grace. That we can't make this heart happen, but we can avail ourselves to the things that can bring this about in our hearts. We can place ourselves in the streams of your grace where your spirit is at work, like your word, like prayer, like the body of Christ. Place ourselves in these places where we know the spirit's at work, where it can bring about this change in our hearts where we desperately need it. So, Father, I, I pray that you would do that even now, that we wouldn't wait. as we we look to partake in the Lord's Supper together Father may we look and see that your promises are true and that because your blood was spilt to pay the price for my sin I get to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus took the payment for my sins Father, ask us to believe, to give us the hearts to believe and treasure these things this morning. Father, for your glory and for our good, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.